morning, church. I'm excited this morning to finish our series in the book of Ruth. Um, the big idea of this series is contained in uh, the title for the series, Ruth from Ruin to Redemption. And, and I love that, that title because it speaks of the hope that the story of Ruth talks about, that things can move from a place of ruin, from a place of being broken down to a place of redemption, that, that God can work in those hard places to bring a work of healing that is hard to even comprehend. I mean, I love even the imagery, right, of the title slide, this, this sort of new growth springing out of what was once dead or lacked hope. And yet, I want to draw us into the tension of this because I love this idea from ruin to redemption. But what I wrestle with is when I am walking in a season of ruin, when I'm in the place where things have fallen off the rails, where I'm in a place of, uh, of loss, of suffering, of challenge, of difficulty, what I wrestle with church is seeing how it's possible for things to move from ruin to redemption. How about you? When I am here and it feels like God has taken so much from me in a season of challenge, I go, God, I want to believe ruin to redemption is true, but I struggle to grasp it as something that can be true for me and for my situation. And so what I want to do as we close out the series is I want to jump back to chapter one of Ruth and I I want to draw us into the story. I want us to walk the journey of Naomi and Ruth a little bit with them to understand what they're going through because ruin that, that, that word ruin, that feels a little bit like an over-exaggeration at first blush. Ruin, that, that, that's intense. But I think when we walk through Naomi's life, I think it's an apt descriptor for what she experienced. I, I think Naomi's story is a picture of incredible loss and suffering. It is a picture of a life in ruin. And how do we see her movement from ruin to redemption and, and what does that mean for us? Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left with her two sons and her husband. When you watch someone's life, it's easy to watch the decisions they make and for us to sort of judge their decisions, to watch somebody make certain decisions and go, why in the world would they decide to do that? Why would they make this decision? If they knew what I knew, if I was in their situation, I could make a much better decision. Why in the world would they choose to do it this way? And I have to to think that this is part of how the people of Bethlehem and Judah saw Naomi and Elimelech's decision to go to Moab. Now, part of what strikes me when you read the first five verses of Ruth is it's just like the story is like facts reported. Naomi and Elimelech went to Moab and then they had some loss. And, but there, there is a whole story that's unfolding here. So Naomi and Elimelech at this point are, are a young family. 
And, and we know they're young. They have two sons who are not yet married, which means their sons are not yet of marriable age. And so you have Naomi and Elimelech as young parents trying to figure out how to raise their kids. Y'all, that's hard enough, isn't it? As a parent, the only thing I know about parenting is that I have almost no idea what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. There's so many times in parenting, I just feel like I'm flying blind, right? Trying my best to raise my kids and to bring them up in a way that follows the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. So here's Naomi and Elimelech. They are a young family. They are trying to do their best to raise their kids in a way that's good and wise and true. Now, a couple things that emerge right away in the story in verse one, this was in the days when the judges ruled. That is not an inconsequential fact. In the time when the judges ruled, this was a significant season of international upheaval in both Israel and Judah. Can I read for you the last sentence of the book of Judges? Here's the last sentence of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. That's a difficult time. That means people are just kind of deciding, I'm going to live however I want to live. I don't care how it affects you. And so Israel and Judah are in a season sort of of crisis, of upheaval. And here's Naomi and Elimelech going, how do we raise our young sons in, in a culture that just everybody does what they want? And, and they're wrestling with that decision and that question as parents. But then we're told also in verse one, that now there's a famine in the land. So now you have Naomi and Elimelech living in an uncertain time, a time filled with violence and uncertainty. And now there's an international famine and Naomi and Elimelech, I just imagine them looking at each other going, how are we going to feed our kids? There there is no food to be had. How are we going to feed two young growing boys? And they make a decision that would have been heart-wrenching and to the people on the outside of their life would have looked foolish. They decide to go to Moab. Now that's good. Okay. They decide to go to Moab. We read that and we say, okay, if there's food there, great. But we have to recognize that the people of Moab were enemies to the people of Israel and Judah. And so what everyone in Israel and Judah sees is that Naomi and Elimelech are abandoning their inheritance in the promised land. They are abandoning their identity as God's people and they are traveling to a foreign country, a country that is enemies to the people of Israel and Judah to try to survive. And so the the people of Israel and Judah, they go, why would you find and look for shelter among our enemies? And you've got Naomi and Elimelech as young parents trying to feed their children in the middle of an international famine, making a desperate decision to do what they have to do to help their family survive. So Naomi and Elimelech go to Moab. Verse three. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. I want you to think about what's just unfolded there. Naomi and Elimelech left behind their family. They left behind their community. They are in a foreign country where they don't have family. They don't have community. They don't have people that that care for them. They are in a country where they are viewed likely as enemies, as people who don't belong here. And now Naomi's husband dies and it says she's left with her two sons. She is now a young widowed mother in the middle of an international famine going, how in the world do I raise these boys in this kind of time? 
And, and as a widow, it's likely, especially in a culture that's not Israel and Judah, that she has no legal status and standing. She has no recourse really to provide for herself. At least she has her sons that can help provide for her. As men in that culture, they would have had some status and standing. They would have had some ability to make an income. Verse four, it says, they married Moabite women named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now, what's interesting is in the 10 years that they lived there, there's no mention of children. Several scholars said it's really likely, although the text doesn't say it explicitly, it's really likely that both Achillean and Malon and their wives, Orpah and Ruth, struggled with infertility. To go 10 years without children entering the picture, it was very likely that this was a significant struggle for them. And so now you have Naomi who's lost her husband. She's got her two sons and it's likely that they're wrestling with fertility issues and trying to have a family and unable to. And the story continues to unfold. In verse five, it says this, both Malon and Killian also died. Listen to this last sentence of verse five. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We can read through that story, this first five verses, relatively quickly. But when you get to verse five, that is a declaration of heartache. This is a description of ruin. Naomi has lost literally everything. Now, in this place of suffering... Naomi wrestles with being alone. She has Orpah and Ruth, but they, they really have no lasting commitment to her, especially since their, their husbands, Naomi's sons, are dead. And so now Ruth is, or Naomi's in a country that's not her own, among a people that are not her own. She has no one to turn to. And she's struggling with, how do I navigate this season of loss alone? You, you can imagine that Naomi struggles with feeling helpless. She has no recourse. She can't get a job. She can't own land in the country of Moab. She has nothing to fall back on. And so she is alone and she is wrestling with feeling helpless. And you can imagine then that in that season of ruin that she feels hopeless. And not only is she alone, not only is there a sense of helplessness, not only is there a sense of hopelessness, but there's a wrestling with uncertainty. How does she find a way forward? How does she, in this place of ruin, how does she build a future for herself? She's abandoned Israel and Judah. She's abandoned her people. How can she go home? Will, will, will they even receive her? Will they welcome her? And Naomi is in a place of being bitter and broken. She makes, of course, the heart-wrenching decision to return back to Judah. And, and you know the story, as Pastor Steve told it the last couple weeks, that as she prepares to go home, she tells Orpah and Ruth, her daughter-in-laws, she says, go home. I'm not going to have any more sons. I'm not even going to have another husband. I'm too old. I'm too long in years. You guys can go home. And Ruth says, nope, I'm going with you. Where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth becomes a gift of grace in her life as she travels with Naomi back to Judah. In Ruth chapter one, verse 19, Naomi and Ruth find their way back home. It says, so the two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? 
Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So after a decade, Naomi returns home. And did you notice it says that the women of Bethlehem were stirred and they asked this question. They say, can this be Naomi? Now, part of it is she's been gone for 10 years, but part of me wonders too, if because of the loss and the grief and the suffering that Naomi bears the mark of that burden on her face, she looks aged because of what she's gone through. And the women of Bethlehem go, man, Naomi, she looks so different. Can this really be her? And and did you notice Naomi's response? She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. And, and, And there's a play on words here that's happening in Hebrew that we don't pick up. The word Naomi means good or pleasant. She says, don't call me good and pleasant. I no longer embody that name. She says, call me Mara. The word Mara means bitter. And did you notice she makes four accusations against God? She says, call me Mara, call me bitter because the Lord Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Have you passed through a season of ruin? Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. a difficult and significant medical diagnosis, the loss of a job. Maybe it was the hope for a relationship that never materialized or a relationship that fell apart. The loss of a pregnancy or the inability to conceive. a relationship with a parent that you wish looked different and it just doesn't? Do you have a place that you look at and you say, I have walked through ruin? A place that you look at and you go, God, why here did you afflict me? Why, Lord, did you bring this upon me? Why, Lord, did you not bring my hopes to pass? And in in that place of ruin, again, the question is, we love the idea of ruin to redemption, but when you are walking through the season of ruin and you don't understand where God has been in that whole time, it is hard to even see how redemption is even possible. And so I think like Naomi, in seasons of suffering, we doubt God's presence. Lord, are you even here? And if you are here, does it even make a difference if you're just going to afflict me? I think at times we doubt God's provision. Lord, in this season of ruin, are you even capable of providing? If you are, why have you allowed this to unfold in the way that it has? God, are you even capable of protecting your children? Lord, are you even powerful? Are you even capable? And I think like Naomi in seasons of suffering, we doubt those things about God. We doubt his presence. We doubt his provision. We doubt his protection. We doubt his power. 
And so while we like the idea of moving from ruin to redemption, when we are in the season of ruin, it is really hard to see that redemption is even a possibility. How in the world could God redeem a mess like this? And yet I think the story of Ruth truly is the story of the reality that God is present and working in and through seasons of suffering. There's two phrases. In church, this is why as we read scripture, we we have to slow down. Sometimes we're, we're quick to move through scripture, but there's two phrases that we could read right through and just keep going. The first is in Ruth chapter one, verse six. It said, when Naomi heard in Moab that, catch this, the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. In Ruth chapter four, verse 13, it says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, catch this, the Lord enabled her to conceive. Now, as you read the story of Ruth and Naomi, that question of where is God present should be on our minds. That's what the writer of Ruth wants to draw us into, that tension of, is God here? Is God working? But as you read the the book of Ruth, right away in Ruth chapter one and the end in Ruth chapter four, the whole story is bookended by a testimony of God's provision. The Lord provided food. The Lord ended the famine in a way only he could. And in Ruth chapter four, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. And what the writer of Ruth wants to draw us into is this story between the beginning and the end, that story of heartache is bookended by this testimonial to God's provision and God's presence right in the middle of suffering. I I think church, our temptation in a season of suffering in a place of ruin is to go, I'm going to take control of my story because I don't believe that God is capable of doing anything in my life. I think the challenge for us, church, is to say, can I surrender, even even in a place of ruin, even when I don't understand what God is doing, even when it doesn't feel like he's present, even when I don't see it, can I surrender into the mystery of what God is unfolding and trust him to guide my life in a way that is good and right and true? Before we finish the story of Ruth, I want to jump over to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 teaches theologically what Ruth is trying to tell us through story, through narrative. Isaiah 61, let's jump over there and we'll come back to Ruth. Isaiah 61, verse one. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And church, here's the beautiful thing about ruin to redemption is that God mends and God sends. Let's walk through this. At the time that Isaiah is writing this, he is speaking prophetically to the people of Israel. The people of Israel have a history of being conquered and carried into exile. There's of course the the slavery that they were subject to in Egypt that the Exodus tells us all about their story out of that. 
Most recently uh, to Isaiah is the people of Israel have been captured and taken in exile again to Babylon. And so the people of Israel are in a place where they have been crushed. They have been oppressed. Their, their, their cities have literally been destroyed. They are living literally in a time and a season of ruin. And what Isaiah speaks prophetically into that, he says, listen, things feel like they're ruined right now, but God is doing a new work of restoration and redemption. Fast forward to Luke chapter four. This is the New Testament now, the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Luke. Luke tells us in chapter four that as was his custom, Jesus entered the synagogue with his disciples. Synagogue simply means gathering place. It would be sort of like a local church community gathering for the people to read from Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to hear the law and the prophets. As Jesus enters the synagogue, the attendant who is the one in charge of the scriptures hands Jesus the scroll to the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus opens to Isaiah 61. Jesus reads the same passage that I just read to you. He rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and Jesus goes and sits down. And when you read Luke 4, it says the eyes of everyone were glued to Jesus because he read the text with authority and power that they weren't used to. And as they're looking at Jesus, he declares to them in the synagogue, he goes, today in your hearing, this word is fulfilled. In other words, Jesus says what Isaiah prophesied about so many years ago, Jesus says, I am coming to bring to completion and fruition right now. And so where Isaiah speaks literally to a people in exile, in, in recovery of exile, Jesus says there is also a deeper spiritual dimension to this work that he is coming to do. When Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. When Jesus says that's fulfilled, he is declaring himself to be the anointed one. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means Messiah or anointed one. And Jesus says, I have come to bring the hope and the truth of the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And church, the good news of the gospel is the good news of a God who sees us in the midst of our ruined place and joins us there. Philippians chapter two, Paul writing to the church at Philippi says, y'all's attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what Paul says in Philippians 2 is that Jesus deserves glory and honor and majesty as the God of all creation. But what Jesus did is he gave up the glory and the majesty that is so rightly his. And Jesus stepped into a broken, uh, sin-filled world and died on our behalf. And the good news of the gospel is not that God is far off and distant saying, oh, I'll make it right someday. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus steps into our brokenness with us and even now begins to minister healing and wholeness and redemption. N notice what Isaiah says next that Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of. He says in verse one, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Let 
I've, I've got three young kids. And whenever, you know, they're, they're riding a bike or riding a scooter, they fall off, they skin a knee, they, they run into something, they bonk a head. You know this, right? What does a child do? They immediately begin to look for me or Lauren, right? They want me or mom to comfort them. And all the, I, 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 can't, I can't make the scrape go away, right? I, I just hug them and I go, oh, show me where it hurts. Right? And I, I put a Band-Aid on it, which Band-Aid doesn't do a whole lot, right? But I, I comfort them. I, I attend to the wound. I bring the healing that I can. And, and I love this image, though, in, in Isaiah 61. It's this image of God, our Father, who sees us in our places of brokenness and woundedness. And God himself attends to that place of brokenness. And so, church, here's what I want to say to us today. Your place of ruin... That place of loss, of suffering, I, I, I don't have the answer to the question why. People always ask me, Pastor, why did God allow this to happen? I don't know. But church, here's the word of Lord for us today. All I do know is that scripture says, even in the place of ruin, the God of all creation meets us there as a tender father who himself attends to our broken, wounded heart. All I know to do in those places is to say, Jesus, I don't understand. I don't get it. In fact, Jesus, I am angry. All I know is I need you to attend to my wound. And the word of the Lord is that God himself will bind up our brokenness. L listen to what else happens as this uh, passage unfolds. He's come to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Those places where we are in bondage, sometimes we're in bondage to our own brokenness, that a wound can fester so deeply that it becomes to define the rest of our existence. Sometimes we're in bondage to broken family systems, to broken dysfunctional elements that we grew up in. Sometimes we're in bondage to addictions or mindsets that are not good for us, that are not what God would have for us. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can bring freedom from family dysfunction, that Jesus can bring freedom freedom from addiction, that Jesus can even bring freedom from the power of suffering to define our whole existence. And he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. This is prophetic language that says, I trust that God will finally and fully set all things right. Look at verse three and the end of verse two. It says that God will comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve. And again, church, I don't, I don't have the answers to all the questions we want to ask God about why. All I know is that scripture says in the place of mourning, God will meet us there and will comfort us there. All I know is that it says that God will provide for us there and that somehow in the mystery of the kingdom of God, somehow in the mystery of God's redemptive purpose, that new life and new hope and new redemption can spring up from a place of ruin. Notice what it says at the end of verse three. That God will give his people a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. A spirit of despair is, that, that's a strong word. When I think of a spirit of despair, a spirit of despair is this place where I go, I don't have hope. 
Despair is a place where I go, Jesus, I don't see a way out. I don't see a way through. This place of ruin hangs on my neck like a burden. Jesus, what in the world can you do? And what Jesus says is in that place of despair, he can bring healing and he can bring redemption and he can bring restoration. And what the word of God tells us in Isaiah is that place of despair can be healed to become a place where actually we find ourselves praising God for what happened there. And, And I know church, if you were in a season of ruin, you probably don't believe me right now. You go, how can I possibly praise God in the middle of a place where everything has been taken from me? And church, this is, in in my own seasons like this, all I know how to do is to pray, Jesus, I believe, but oh Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help me to see where praise is taking root and rising up out of a place of despair. Your word says that you can, Lord. Help me to see it and believe it and see the fruit of it. Isaiah continues, and he says, they, those people who've been burdened and crushed, who've been in captivity, he says this, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, when you think about Israel, it's a dry, arid climate. They don't have a lot of tall, majestic trees. They don't don't have a lot of tall, mature oak trees because the climate and the soil and the rainfall can't support it. And yet what God says is in in the middle of a place of brokenness, my people will experience healing and redemption and restoration such that those who were formerly broken, their life will look like an oak of righteousness. The the symbolism here is that an oak is a symbol of, of power, of life, of vitality. It's a symbol of strength. And God says in that place of brokenness, I will move you to a place of restoration and redemption, a place of strength and healing and wholeness where your life becomes a testimony to the glory of God and to his ability to redeem. And and not only that, as God brings healing, listen to what it says in verse four. They, those same people who were broken, those same people who were crushed and in captivity, as they encounter and experience God's healing, he says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Here's the observation, church, I want to take from that. Our greatest areas of pain are often the greatest places of God working through us for redemptive purposes. In that thing, in that place, in that season, that you wrestled with a season of suffering and ruin and loss, that God can bring restoration and redemption and healing and wholeness, and somehow he can do such a work of redemption that you now are sent to bear witness to what God did in your life and you are now sent into the lives of other people who were likewise broken to bear witness to the redemptive possibilities of God's grace. And your place of ruin and suffering and loss and mourning as God redeems it becomes one of the unique places that God wants to use your life to bring healing and wholeness and restoration and redemption by his grace in the life of another person. And did you notice? He says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will renew ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. What happens, church, is when I feel redemption from a place of brokenness, I want to run away from it. And yet as God redeems it, he says, no, 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 I want you to go back. That coworker who's in a season of ruin, I want you to minister to them. 
your family that is so dysfunctional and you have encountered the transformative redemption of God's grace, I want you to go back to your, your broken family, your dysfunctional family, and I want you to bear witness to the redemptive possibilities of my transformative grace in their life. And church, as God heals, I think he likewise then sends us into places of brokenness for us to bear witness to the redemptive possibilities of God's grace. Let's go back to the book of Ruth and see how this concludes. Ruth chapter four. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law, right? Who is likewise a widow. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. Now, previously, Ruth had not been able to conceive. 10 years she was in Moab with her husband. And now the Lord enables her. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. Here's the thing, church. God's plan for Naomi and Ruth was bigger than anything they could have comprehended. Out of the bitterness of Naomi's loss and suffering and ruin, comes the greatest redemption of all. If you go to Matthew and read the genealogy of Jesus, you can trace that lineage all the way back to Obed, to Ruth's son, Naomi's grandson. David, the most famous king of all, is in the lineage of Ruth's son. And in a way that we can't even hardly comprehend, the redemption of all of humanity. Jesus' story can trace all the way back to Ruth and to Naomi. And God brought redemption and restoration in a way that's hard to even imagine. As we think about this, I just want to encourage us in two things. One is to remain rooted in faith. And sometimes, again, it's that simple prayer of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I don't, I don't want to take control of my own story. Help me to surrender fully into this thing that you're doing, even if I don't understand it. And likewise, church, I want us to wrestle with what does it look like to live as a sent people? To recognize that in that place of ruin and suffering, where God is bringing healing, that he wants to redeem that and transform that to such an extent that your place of loss can actually be a story and a testimony of God's grace that becomes a healing salve in the life of another.